0: You can't do everything when you've moved into that CEO or that executive role. And so how do you manage the time you spend on the business versus in the business? The goal is, again, to kind of surround yourself with people whose strengths are in those areas that maybe you're having to give up a little bit. Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me Chris Reynolds. Chris is the CEO at Arrowhead Consulting. So first of all, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me and welcome to the podcast.
0: Hey, glad to be here, Tom. Thank you.
1: Chris, could you tell us your professional background?
0: Sure. So I would categorize myself as a serial entrepreneur. I've dabbled in many different companies, owned different companies, ultimately resting at Arrowhead Consulting about five years ago. But really stemming from a business background. I had two degrees from the university or college, of uh, centenary college in economics and another one in just business, got a master's in marketing, decided to put all that together and help organizations get better or fulfill their passion through consulting. So that's really kind of the background that that got me to where I am today.
1: So could you tell us your current role? And since I know what that role is, what led you to wanting to be or taking the CEO role at Arrowhead Consulting?
0: Sure. It really came about, I don't know, from necessity, but you know, I'm not hung up on titles. When you start a, a new business, you wear many hats, whether they start with a C or not. It got to the point that when we were really trying to reach out to the community, it was which title is going to resonate most when you're trying to talk to the clients and lead them on their journey. And so we dabbled with, well, should it be president? Should it be COO? Should it be CEO or managing partner? I've worn all those different titles. At the end of the day, I don't really care what my title is. I really just want to be able to help organizations. But right now, Chief Executive Officer seems to be what follows behind my name on LinkedIn and and things like that. So what's the business of Arrowhead Consulting, Chris? Well, the elevator pitch, Tom, would be people have heard of personal trainers. And why do we go to personal trainers? Well, we want to get in shape in some way, shape, or form, whether it's our arms, our legs, or our core. We're doing kind of the same thing at Arrowhead Consulting, but instead of working on those body parts. We're helping organizations with their people, their processes, and their tools. And since every organization at any size has people, processes, and tools, we feel really strongly that the services and the products that we offer can help those organizations get in shape. And just like personal trainers, our goal is to give you something prescriptive, some kind of set of guidance that you can follow on your own. And then if you need to come back and tweak something, you're getting ready for a marathon or launching of a new product, you can come talk to us and we can help you there as well.
1: You know, that's really interesting because I've talked to a fair number of people thinking about business in not simply 2025, but maybe 2030 and further down the road. And one clear theme is it's not data and the increased use of data. It is people who can work with data and that these forward thinkers saying that talent acquisition and retention will be the key critical skill for corporations going forward. So people, process, and tools, man, that's spot on for that.
0: Yeah, I would agree. And I like what you're saying about data-based decisions. I was just with a client yesterday who said, we've been making our decisions based on guesses. And they really wanted to be able to have something more concrete, more data points to be able to create that clarity and that transparency so that they can grow their organization. But at the root of it all, you're still going to have people that are going to have to help you move the needle. And so, unfortunately, we're kind of going through the great resignation, or we've heard that term before. How do we keep our employees engaged in wanting them to be a part of the organization so that they're still with us in 2025 or 2030? That is something that we help with. One of the other missing pieces that kind of supplement people, processes, and tools is culture. And that cultural item, you know, you could be buttoned up with your people, making sure they get the training and on the right path. The tools could be great and the processes are good. But you don't have a culture that people want to not only survive, but thrive in. It's a checkbox or a checkmark that gets them out the door. So we got to really shape up and shore up that cultural aspect as well. So, Chris, many of the
1: listeners to this podcast are in the compliance space. Chief compliance officers or compliance professionals. And I recognize compliance can be a wide variety of things, all the way from sexual harassment to anti-corruption and everything in between. But I was interested in your remarks around culture for the following reason. Last year in October, the number two at the Department of Justice, a woman named Lisa Monaco gave a speech. And she said that the Department of Justice now in criminal investigations for corporations will focus on corporate culture. And they view that as the key indicia in looking at companies beyond whether they violated whatever the law might be, is what's the corporate culture. So it's a long-winded way of introducing the question If the regulators are saying corporate culture is so important, when you talk to businesses, do they understand what you're saying in terms of the importance of corporate culture?
0: I think if not, it's our job to educate them and make sure that they do. Again, it's a little bit interesting, and and I am not an expert on compliance, so I don't want to offer up too much advice. Uh, There are certain rules that you have to follow depending on the size of your organization. So I'd always want to make sure that you talk to your HR representative or legal representative on that. But from a cultural aspect, what we look at is making sure that the culture is really aligned with your core values. And your core values can't just be words that you put up on a wall. It's unfortunate that when I go into organizations and they tell me that they have really strong core values, I can point to where they are on the wall. But if I were to ask them what they were, the people don't know what they are. And that tells me that it's really not living the core values that we've established. For us at Arrowhead, we hire and fire by our core values. We can teach you the skills needed to be a successful consultant or a project manager or a business analyst. But if you're not really living and breathing the core values, you're not really going to be a culture fit. So ours is more on the softer side of culture. I think the harder side is the compliance side and making sure that we're in alignment there as well.
1: Chris, Arrowhead Consulting recently had its fifth anniversary. I was wondering if you might give us a couple of the highlights for you over these past five years as CEO.
0: Yeah, and and I was really thinking about that as we are in our fifth year. It's kind of amazing. Sometimes I I have to pinch myself to see if it's real. There's several statistics out there that say up to 50% of businesses fail within their first five years. I remember after our first year, people were kind of surprised that we made money our first year. And I said, well, isn't that the goal of having a business? And so we've just continued to excel and even amidst the pandemic. And so I've been very fortunate in surrounding myself with some very talented folks who, as the saying goes, when the tide rises, all ships in the harbor rise with it. Getting those great folks that are enabling us to expand into the public sector space with Shane Cox or diversity, equity, and inclusion with Kuma Roberts. Those are some of the key wins that we've had from a people side and bringing in new clients and new projects that we can work with really believe that our growth has allowed us to do more in the community. One of our core values is to move forward. You have to give back. We wholeheartedly believe in that. And so we've been able to give time, money, and effort into some of the community partners that we work in. And so I think that's a key win. And honestly, Tom, you know, after everybody tries to do some kind of maybe an investment when you have a good year, we had a really good year last year and the team kind of listed a few different roads they wanted to pursue this year from an investment perspective. And I'm looking at it. We're almost at the end of the first quarter here and I go, wow, we've got five major initiatives that we're going to try to accomplish in our fifth year. A lot of organizations would focus on one, but our team has been up to the challenge and I'd love to talk to you in about six to nine months and let's see how successful we were in launching some pretty significant initiatives that I think not only our current customers, but our future customers are really going to be excited about.
1: So you mentioned Kuma Roberts. I recently had the opportunity to speak with her. And perhaps the biggest takeaway I got from that interview was the business case for DEI. Not that you should engage in it because it's the right thing to do, but you should engage in it because it will make your business more efficient and at the end of the day, more profitable. Is that a message that you find resonates in the business community?
0: It is. I think there's always going to be leaders and laggers in that area. What aligned me to Kuma was that perspective that she took. You know, she's not trying to change hearts and minds. She's really trying to point out why it's, and as you stated, it's not only the right thing to do, but it makes the most business sense. And so, in discussions before bringing Kuma on, we made sure that we were kind of in agreement with the direction that we wanted to grow our uh, DNI space and how we were going to go about doing that, the messaging and the reasoning and the catalyst behind that. So, to your question of, is it really permeating and resonating within the business community? Again, yes, we've had such an influx of people wanting to understand it more, to start initiatives, to expand kind of that knowledge within the organizations. It's only going to continue. I certainly don't think this is a fad. I think it's the right thing that we need to be doing. And we just need to evangelize that as it spreads across the, the world, honestly.
1: Chris, doing a little research to prepare for this podcast, came across some articles that you had written over the past couple of years. So I wanted to ask you some questions about those. In an article for the Tulsa World entitled Pushing Through the Pandemic Era Business Slump, you listed three key strategies. And what I really wanted to ask you is... Can companies or should companies really adopt some of those practices that we all had to engage in during the pandemic as permanent moving forward?
0: Yes. I mean, the short answer is yes. There's always got to be some modification or adaptation of plans that you put into place during a pandemic. Nobody had thought that that was going to occur. And we had to shift, not only in the way we're doing business, but culturally Uh, working through that. And so going back to the dark recesses of my mind of what I wrote back then, I believe those three strategies were around creativity, the relationships, the connections that we have with people, and really just fundamentally going back to basics. So yes. So to answer that question and expand upon that a little bit, the creativity piece was, and we've really employed this as well. We would put out what we thought were engaging advertisements, if you will, on LinkedIn and Facebook, and they got decent traction. But we really wanted to kind of pair that creativity with that connection or that relationship piece. And so we started to do just individual handheld camera videos. So Kuma did one for Black History Month in February. We did one for International Women's Day. I just took my family to Disney World, and I did one to talk about project management and lessons learned and how everything in life we do is a project. And we've seen such a significant uptick in engagement and sharing of those posts because I think people want to have that connection and want to understand that the people that they're working with and and potentially could work with. So yes, I would encourage companies, whether you're small or large, take the time to do more personal related touch points with the people that you're trying to engage with. Kind of going back to the basics piece is really kind of look at what got you to where you are and make sure that we're accentuating those elements of your business. I think that what we've seen with the pandemic, we saw the exodus from business offices and people working from home. And a lot of organizations are not going to return to having people have to come to the office or at least full time. You can see that people are able to be productive, but I'm also finding that people are missing out on that human interaction. We've been hiring a lot of folks recently, and really what we've found is people are saying, you know, we got a taste of your culture, whether they came and visited us or came to a training class. And they said, that's what I miss. I have been having to work from home by myself for the past year or 18 months. I want to get back to that human connectivity. So I don't think that working from home is going to be right for everybody and it's going to be permanent, but I do think you're going to see a significant shift in that. And so realistically, Summing up kind of the three points that I had, I think it's still going to go back to relationships and those that crave that human interaction. That's what we really got to focus on as we return from uh, hiding out or not hiding out, but being away from the office.
1: In another article, you had a great line, which was time is a non-renewable resource. And in my life in the corporate world, that was absolutely true. And, And I've worked for myself for a long time now, but the biggest bane of my life either in the corporate world or as an outside consultant, is meetings, non-productive meetings. So what are some of the tips that either you give clients or that actually you guys at Arrowhead Consulting use to make the time component of meetings more efficient for everyone?
0: This is one of my favorite topics to talk about. It's a soapbox item that I have. I work it into every training class I do because companies invariably are very poor at holding effective meetings. The average cost of a one-hour meeting of a Fortune 500 company is like $547. A lot of people are in dozens of meetings a week. So imagine the cost to those businesses if we're not moving the needle from those meetings. A lot of times they're information-sharing meetings. There's other ways that we can information share. The goal of our meetings should be to be decision-making meetings where we're addressing who's doing what by when and making sure that we're taking that knowledge in advancing whatever the initiative was that called the meeting in the first place. How to keep them on track, I'm a big proponent of having structured meeting agendas, making sure that we time box those, meaning that we're going to put the most important topics at the beginning of the meeting and aligning that with the amount of time we think we're going to need to talk through those because then the facilitator can kind of look and they're, they're going to say, hey, you know, we spent 15 minutes and we really were only supposed to spend 10. We've got several other topics to talk about allows them the ability to facilitate through that. We also have, you know, you've probably been involved in meetings. I know you probably, Tom, weren't late to meetings, but you've probably been in meetings where people walk in late and disrupt it. Well, if we're starting with the most important topics first, and we can get in that rhythm and cadence and set that expectation with our meeting attendees, they're going to want to be there on time so that they can contribute to the most important topics. So having that facilitator there is important. I would encourage organizations to also utilize a scribe, kind of the court reporter, if you will, if the facilitator is heads down, taking down all the notes, they can't read the body language of the room. They can't do a great job of facilitating. But if you've got somebody there that can court report the stuff, especially since we're going to be recording decisions, it helps to have that double set of ears that can meet up after the end of the meeting so that we can send out the meeting minutes and make sure that we're on the same page. That's certainly important. You've heard me already say, who does what by when? I've audited several meetings where Action items get given out, but there's no assignment of who's supposed to do it or there's no assignment of when it's supposed to be done. It's as soon as possible. Well, between you and me, Tom, that could be weeks difference of what as soon as possible is. So making sure that you review any action items that were given, review that at the end of the meeting and at the beginning of the subsequent meeting so that we know how we're doing and moving the needle is certainly important.
1: Let me change the focus just a little bit, and this is something that I ran into in my professional career, which was before I moved into executive or leadership positions, I worked very, very hard. I paid attention to a lot of details, and I tried to know everything so that I could not only deliver a better product, in my case, it was as a lawyer, but also to be the resource that people, including clients, would come to for questions. But when you move into an executive position, and you as CEO perhaps would be a good example, you need to use a different set of skills. And so I was wondering, how can a new business leader who's been perhaps very successful in a junior exec ranks or lower ranks, when they make that step up, how do you counsel them to use that different muscle or develop a new muscle for a different set of skills?
0: That's a great question. And when you were speaking about that, I wanted to make sure, though, that we didn't just forego all the details there's a great book i think it's andy andrews that wrote the little things why you really should sweat the small stuff it's a really good book it's an easy read but i would encourage the executives non-executives to go ahead and read that you can't do everything when you've moved into that ceo or that executive role and so how do you manage the time you spend on the business versus in the business the goal is again to kind of surround yourself with people whose strengths are in those areas that maybe you're having to give up a little bit. So I used to, you know, starting out, I'd have to write and review and approve every proposal that went out the door. I don't have time for that. We're getting a lot of influx of clients that are asking us to do stuff in areas that I may not be the subject matter expert in. So we want to make sure that we have those kind of people that are good proofreaders that can guide the subject matter experts as they provide the content for those proposals maybe make sure that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. I will say I am still a work in progress on releasing some of the things that I've had my hands in. But again, it's understanding. We do a lot of personality assessments as part of our executive coaching and things like that. So Strengths Finders is one that we use, making sure that we see who's got those skills. Delegation is big. We teach a whole class on delegation and, and there's tips and tricks on how to delegate and what to delegate. I remember Ronald Reagan's famous quote, to trust but verify. So we do a lot of that is that we've got to make sure that our team is given opportunities to grow. And I am finding as my time in the business is working more on it, meaning the strategy and the ideas and the strategic leadership that my organization looks for me to do, I have to give a lot of the stuff that I was doing in the business to the employees. And I treat those as growth opportunities for them. They always know that they have an open door policy. They always know that mistakes are learning experiences, where we would struggle as if we're making the same mistakes over and over again. And that's in business, that's on the soccer field with the girls that I coach. They realize that we've got to educate ourselves so we don't make the same mistakes. But I think it's really the delegation and finding that right balance. It's going to be a little bit of trial and error. But I think we have found over the last couple of years, especially as we've grown in the numbers of employees that we've had and the number of work and engagements that I've had to be personally involved in you have to let it go and you have to trust but verify.
1: Let me uh, ask you to put on your prognosticators hat a little bit and and look down the road into 2025 or perhaps even beyond. We touched on culture, employee acquisition or talent acquisition and retention, but we changed the focus to perhaps project management, which unfortunately most lawyers don't understand. And we do very poorly because we're not professionally trained to think like that. But at the areas of PM and tech, it's becoming much more important in all areas of business. And so I was wondering where you see the focus of that down the road and you guys do a lot of training. So how do you give
0: engaged
1: training, but also that's targeted so that people can really have a takeaway and use it?
0: Yeah, there were several questions in that little (laughs) synopsis. (laughs) I'll do my best to address all those. So one of the elements I think that you spoke about was the technology side and how does technology? tie into training in the next few years. You know, the speed of change, especially in technology, has been so rapid. I think that there are going to be so many different things that that we haven't even imagined yet that's going to move into that space. And the first thing that comes to my mind is virtual reality with training. I've seen where virtual reality is just really picking up from an entertainment perspective, whether it's to play games or to sit courtside at a basketball game. I think you're going to see more virtual reality kind of be the bolt on to virtual training over Zoom meetings or things like that. Because, how do you make it engaging? It's got to be experiential, it's got to be that hands on piece. It's not somebody at a whiteboard lecturing or just reading slides from a PowerPoint presentation or even just hearing a speaker speak for an hour on a topic. I'm really excited about where that can actually go. And yes, today we have what CBT's computer based training, which do have some exercise based elements. But those are generally done just one directional. You're just working or interacting with the computer program. If we have some training spaces where we have the virtual reality, you could be training with somebody across the other side of the globe and being able to talk and work on projects together and things like that. So, from a technology standpoint, I think that's where we're going to go in the next three years or so. How do you make it engaging? Again, it has to be experiential, it has to be hands on has to have exercises where you're either teeing up the exercise or you're jumping right into the exercise and you're debriefing and reinforcing what they actually did. There's three different styles of learners. There's the, the audio uh, who does better by listening, and that's why those people are listening to podcasts uh, such as yours. There's those that prefer reading, so they're visual. They're going to read the books. And then there's the kinesthetic, and those are the ones that are hands-on. And, and even though you might be thinking, well, I do good with all three, you do have a preference, whether you know it or not. And so you talked about tailoring. It's really important to us, more specifically to executive coaching, where you're working one-on-one. We don't want to just throw a coaching package at you because you're coming from a manufacturing industry and you're this age. And so we don't want to make assumptions. We want to make sure we understand your best learning style. We always want to give you kind of that strengths finders assessment to get a high level of what your kind of personality is. And then when we move deeper into either developing training programs for organizations or coaching programs. We do deeper dive assessments to, again, immerse you in a training or coaching program that's best suited for your preferences and your strengths.
1: Chris, we have a Special bonus question for you, because you are the first graduate of Centenary College to appear on any of my podcasts. Awesome. So for those who may not know, Centenary College is in Shreveport, Louisiana, and I wanted to ask you what took you to Centenary, and if you have a few words about your experience there.
0: Sure. So why I went to Centenary at the time, and I won't tell you the year, I don't want to date myself too much, but at the time, it was the smallest Division One school in the nation. It was the oldest school founded west of the Mississippi, and I was a soccer player, was an all-state selection and a state champion at my high school, and really enjoyed, when the recruiter came, what they offered. It's an only a one-square-mile campus, so it's pretty small, but I had a quarter soccer scholarship and a three-quarter academic scholarship, so at the time, it was a full ride. It was five hours away, which was Far enough that I wasn't tempted to come home on the weekends, but it wasn't so far that if we got a long break, I could come home. And because it was in Louisiana, we had not only a spring break, we had a Mardi Gras break <laughs> every year. So there was a time where I would go to Mardi Gras, but uh, about every other year, I would use that as a, a way to come home and, and see the family back in Oklahoma. But the experience there was great. At the time, there was only 900-ish undergraduates, and so that's pretty small for a Division one school. But getting to know all the different people there, I really liked the ability to really connect with my professors. We had really small classes. I started out, honestly, to be an accountant. And when I had signed up for classes, they said, well, you're going to need 150 hours to sit for the CPA exam. I'm like, I don't want to be in college for 150 hours of time. Fast forward, long story short, though, after taking 21 hours my final semester I had 154 hours in four years. Did not pursue an accounting degree. As mentioned earlier, I I got a BS in economics and a BA in business with a minor in Spanish and environmental studies. For 150 hours, you got to apply it to something. So I had a lot of different designations, but I also liked that I'm not a good cold weather guy. And so I headed down south to uh, avoid ice storms and snowstorms. The weather was a little bit humid at times, but that was easier for me to adjust versus uh, sub zero temperatures that. I could have encountered at another college.
1: Chris, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but uh, I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, on Arrowhead Consulting, or really any of the topics we've touched on this podcast. What would be the best way for them to find out more?
0: Sure. Heading to our website, arrowheadconsulting.com, you can see kind of the main focal points that we like to uh, bring to each of our prospective clients. You can sign up there, whether it's talking to me or Bruce or Kuma or Shane. We do a, a free a session with you guys just to kind of hear what's going on and the pain points that you have in your organization. I'll do a preemptive kind of a, a spoiler alert. Kuma and I are both writing a book this year. So if you want to learn more about how we specifically can help organizations, uh, be on the lookout for that. We have a speakers bureau that you can get some more information on some of the topics that we do. That's arrowheadspeakers.com. And not only Kuma and myself, but we've got a good fleet of speakers that are very talented. In multiple different areas that they can share information for. So I would welcome you to come visit us there and and follow up with a phone call or a conversation.
1: Chris, thanks again for taking the time to visit with me and I look forward to continuing this conversation.
0: Tom, I appreciate the invite. Thanks so much. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.